there is hope. And hope is what we are going to be talking about this morning on this fourth Sunday of Advent. Hope in that one who a child is born, a son is given. Before we open the word, let's pause for a moment of prayer asking, my prayer is that the Spirit of God would make this so real to our hearts, to my heart and to your heart this morning, that Jesus wouldn't be a concept, Jesus wouldn't be a philosophy, but he'd be a real person, that we would, whether we have believed in him all our lives, or whether you're considering believing him maybe for the very first time and thinking about what these claims are all about, he will be a person that you will see how much he loves you, and we will fall in love with him. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by your spirit you would make these truths so real to us. Lord, we come before you and we recognize that at best we see in a glass darkly and we need your spirit to shine the floodlight upon Jesus that we would see not just the information about him but how he applies to our lives. Where we are weak and we need his strength, where we are lonely and we need his presence, where we are hurting and broken and we need the one who is a wonderful counselor and a mighty God, all-powerful, and who's an everlasting Father guiding and protecting, who's the Prince of Shalom and can bring wholeness and healing progressively into our lives. So shape us and form us and change us by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage that our teaching is based, what we've been doing uh, for the weeks of Advent, if you haven't been here with us, is we have been looking at some of the prophecies found in the book of Isaiah that speak about the nature of hope. And our thesis, so to speak, has been the fact that hope is to be the engine that drives your soul. The real life changing dynamic of Christianity, according to Tim Keller, is an experience within oneself of the future. Before we read the text, I'll share a little very brief story from my upbringing. I think some of you may have heard this uh, before. I've been here 17 years and I've been speaking for 17 Advents. It's hard for me to remember which stories I've shared and which stories I haven't shared. So some of you are going, oh, wait a second, that's circa 2006, forgive me. Some of you are going, I've never been here before. Let me hear the story. But growing up, I was the oldest of three boys. And we were never allowed to see any of the presents till Christmas morning. And we lived in a uh, split-level house, so our bedrooms were all on the top floor. And my dad had a rule. You can't come down till the stroke of 7 o'clock till mom and dad get our co coffee and until we basically invite you down, which meant dad had to have his camera ready to take a picture of us to capture the expressions on our faces because hope had been building up. Now, I have to admit, not in those days, can't say it was the hope of Jesus Christ as much for me. It was the hope of, what football am I going to get? And am I going to get the new basketball? And am I, I was always very sports-driven. That hasn't changed a whole lot. But we would stand up at the top of the steps. Dad would say, now... We'd basically knock each other over, you know, real gentle kids we were, in order to see, it was, my house was kind of like that movie, A Christmas Story, that's going to be running in a loop for 24 hours, that was us, you know, and mom's going, you're going to knock and shoot your eye out, and we're going, no, we're not. That is the sense I want you to have 
okay? I say this with all seriousness. Isaiah is speaking, I'm just going to set the context for you. He is speaking to a nation and to a people who were in exile. That means they have been taken from their home into captivity. The capital city of Jerusalem is being ransacked. Their place of worship, the temple, has been torn down. Their children are being slaughtered. It is a bad situation. And it's into this situation that Isaiah is prophesying about the nature of hope. And so listen now to Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9, that says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench until he faithfully, or he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, and my praise to car- nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And friends, this is the very word of the Lord that he gave because he loves his people. I want us to take a look at the nature of hope from three perspectives. This text will bring out three things. So three things real briefly. What does it look like to live in hope? What does it look like to live in humility? And what does it look like to live in love? Don't you think we need all three of those things? We need hope. We definitely need a little bit of humility in our lives. And we definitely were built for and created for and designed for love, okay? First of all, to live in hope. Let me read you this quote about Advent that is written by one church historian and New Testament scholar. He writes, the Christian future hope is the Advent hope. At Jesus' final appearing, his second coming, he will put into operation for the entire cosmos that lordship which is already his by right. But this Advent hope, this second coming hope, isn't something that will arrive simply by the steady work of the church, the eventual climax of a long, slow process. It will be a fresh act of grace, of new creation, completing what was done on the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension, but also going way beyond them in the remaking of the entire cosmos. Peter writes that we were born again, we received a new creation, a new birth into a living hope. And friends, here's our living hope. It is the renewal 
of all things. The remaking of the entire cosmos. That's why Isaiah begins, Behold my servant. Now when I prepare a sermon, I like to look at different translations and see what they say, and there's some that I think are a little mamby-pamby, and some that I think, yeah, they carry the right oomph. They carry what it needs to carry. Okay? I don't want to be critical. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so don't get, you know, I know enough to know where the resources are and can faithfully do that. But like the NIV, for instance, I'm sorry, I think it's a little too weak on this particular one because it just basically goes, here is my servant. And I feel like it's kind of ho-hum. You know, it's not inaccurate, but it's like, here he is, okay? That's not the point. The NAS, the ESV, they're getting more to the point when they go, behold, kind of like, wake up. You're in pain right now. We haven't gotten to this part of the text yet, but you're bruised reeds. You're smoldering wicks. You're about to die out. You're in pain. You're hurting. You're in trouble. You're in exile. You're away from home. It's lonely. It's isolated. It's helpless. You're broken. You're bur- Behold, someone is coming who will actually save you. Now, do you recognize we all need that kind of leader? The Old Testament is a history of failure and a history of failed leadership. Israel as a nation was called to be the light to the other nations. In other words, shine the light and show the Moabs and Egypts and Ethiopias of the world. This is how you live in connection and in communion with God. You are to be a light to the nations pointing to the rescuing, saving God. They didn't do so well at it. And that's why they ended up going into exile. You know, our situation is not a whole lot different. I'm not going to get political this morning, but no matter what side you're on in all of the craziness, how about that? That's as political as I'll get. I'll just call it craziness. And no matter where you fall or sit on that, I don't think it takes too much imagination to look around at our political landscape and see failed leadership. And to be able to go, you know what? The world out there needs leadership. But here's the crux of it. You know what kind of leadership they need? They need servant leadership. They need leadership that is willing to die for the needs of others. The world needs the church to be willing to be self-giving, sacrificial in its love. The world needs the church to live in hope. Look at the text. Behold my servant whom I uphold. He calls him a servant. So here's this individual about to step on the world stage. He's chosen in whom God's soul delights. He says, I've put my spirit upon him. We've mentioned before that spirit is the spirit that will bring into operation and execute the new age, the age to come. And notice what it says three times in the first four verses. He will bring justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And I love verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth. In other words, God's not going to take an afternoon nap. God doesn't faint or grow discouraged. 
until he has established justice on the earth. Now, we need to understand something, a couple different things. First of all, what is justice? We think of justice, and we think of it as only punishment. God will get them. Good. Oh, I like that. Give me the vengeance passages. Oh, that's good. Justice is so much bigger than that. Justice is the promise of God putting everything to rights, which is why verse 3 is so important in this text. Where verse 3, when he says, the servant will not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. This servant, now think about it. We know this. We can look back and we know exactly who this servant is. This is the servant who's the word. Now what does the word mean? He means this is how John describes him. He's the logos. He's our reason for being. He's the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of God's being. He is the revelation of God himself. In other words, if you want to see the invisible God, you look into the face of Jesus. Now what did this word do? He became flesh. In other words, the creator, the one who made everything, all things visible and invisible, entered our world and made himself not immune, not distant from our bruisedness, our brokenness, our helplessness, our hurting. In other words, this servant is subject to the same pressures which have made others, maybe you and I this morning, burn low have made us become a smoldering wick. But he does not burn low or smolder. He is not immune to suffering, but the pressures and blows that immobilize us do not deter him. And friends, that's our hope. Our hope is in a leader, and a leader who is our servant. Isn't that ama- I don't know about you all, but that just utterly, utterly amazes me. That the one who created all things, the one who made all things, made the purpose of his coming to serve. Now get this, because Rick did a marvelous job bringing up in our confession just how wonderful a people we are. And kind of the wonderful heritage and ancestry we come from. You know people who are kind of like God is saving them from slavery and redeeming them and rescuing them and basically are going, I like Egypt better. You're giving me this manna stuff. I'm not sure I even know what manna is. Yeah, I may be in slavery back there, but do you know the prime rib tasted pretty good? Can I go back there a little? That's the type of rebellious, we're not even grateful and appreciative when we've been set free. And God sent Jesus to serve us. The leader we need and the leader the world needs is a servant leader. That's living in hope. Secondly, we need to live in humility. Verses 5 and 6. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Now, This kind of hope breeds humility. Now, here's where the humility comes from. Humility starts with recognizing a danger. It's a danger we all share, and it's a danger we have to be aware of in our lives. You know what that danger is? Self-righteousness. 
See, and here's where self-righteousness can come from with that. See, we can look at this and say, okay, three times it said. Jeff told me. He counted. He even read them out three times. This servant is going to come and serve us by bringing forth justice. That means he's getting the bad guys. Oh, I'm excited. See, because we have a tendency to look at the world, and we tend, and we do this in the church. We sit there and go, there are good guys, and there are bad guys. And which side do you think we think we're on? <laughs> Can I tell you something? We're wrong. See, we look at the world, and we think there's good guys and bad guys, and we forget when we look at verses 5 and 6, that we're forgetting the fact that there are no good guys. They're all bad guys, and we're bad guys too. And we all alike are under the same judgment. That we too deserve justice. That God will not slumber nor sleep. That God will not take a nap until he has established justice. That means we better feel the weight of our being under judgment if we're going to appreciate what the good news really is. See, this is absolutely critical. Because one of the ways for us to see if we're getting in touch with the biblical God or if we're living kind of a distorted life and a God we are making up is whether we recognize the danger of self-righteousness. See, what, God, what Isaiah is saying in verses 5 and 6 is God is creator of the world. In other words, we are all dependent, we are all contingent. We're not the masters of our own soul, the captain of our own ship, the captain of our own fate. We are all dependent, completely dependent on God, and he has called us in righteousness. That means we are accountable to him and that standard is absolute righteousness. That means we are accountable to him for every action, for every word, for every thought, for every motive, for every behavior, for every attitude. His standard is absolute perfection. And he will hold every person accountable to that standard. So what happens when you start to get in touch with the biblical God who is committed to justice and will judge in righteousness, who says, I am the Lord, when you begin to understand his lordship, so we understand that we are something that the Bible calls filthy rags. See, it says this in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. It says, all our righteous acts. This is actually a very sobering and scary verse. Because it doesn't say, see, it's easy to sit there and go, oh, yeah, I've made a lot of mistakes in life. I've lied and gossiped and lusted and been deceptive and all of this. We'd understand if it said, all of your horrible stuff that you feel guilty about are filthy rags. We'd go, I get that. But it doesn't say that. It says all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. That means the best sermon I think I could preach, the one where I finally go home and say that wasn't a dog, <laughs> is like a filthy rag? Uh-huh. That means being right in my theology, I'm reformed, I've got it precise, is like a filthy rag? Yep. How about being a father? I'm a good dad. I'm a good mom. I'm a good husband. I'm a good wife. I listen to focus on the family. I take into account what James Dobson tells me to do. I do all of this stuff. It's like a filthy rag. 
Yep. It's much like the two men who went up to the temple and pray to pray in Luke chapter 18. And the one man says, Father, I thank thee that you made me who I am. And I'm not like other people, especially this guy over here. I fast twice a week. I tithe a tenth of what I get. Ha, <laughs> ha, I'm doing great. Filthy rags. And the other man can't even look up to heaven. Beats his breast and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says it was that man rather than the other who went home justified. See, if we get in touch with the biblical God, what it does is it humbles us. What it does is it makes us recognize that maybe we should have a little humility. We need to live in humility and recognize the thing I think I understand the best. Maybe I don't even have a clue what it's all about. Maybe I need to have a little bit of humility that, that recognizes the very best. I am called, created, and held to a standard of perfect righteousness. And Isaiah says, he talks about the Lord, and the Lord says, I am the Lord. That is my name. There is no other. Maybe we need to recognize who do we think we are. And of course, the answer is we think we're the Lord. Maybe we need a little humility. So the question is, how do we get it? And the answer comes from we need to learn to live in love. The love from God to us, then overflowing and expressed in our love to him and to others. See, this may sound a little bit contradictory to you, but we've been talking a little bit about the judgment and the justice and the anger of God. Yeah, odd Christmas message, right? But we need to understand that the angrier we understand God to be against sin and evil, and it's not like man's anger. It's not like our anger that's based on revenge and getting our way and vengeance. God's anger, God's justice, God's judgment is this fixed, resolute determination to renew all things, to make all things right. We need to understand that the greater his justice, the greater his judgment, the greater we'll understand how much he loves and adores us. The greater we understand the anger and the justice and the judgment of God, to that degree will we understand the depth of his love for us. Look with me at verses 8 and 9 where he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. See, God here is declaring his own name, his personal name. And then he says, I'm not sharing my glory with another. See, what is God's name? He revealed it once before to Moses in the burning bush as Yahweh, which means the God who delivers, the God who rescues, the God who saves. And where does God chiefly reveal his glory? He says, my glory that I give to no other. Jesus said this in John chapter 12, verses 27 and 28. We read, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. So Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. And the voice says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. 
So what is this hour that Jesus is referring to? My soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. What is this hour that is moving like a giant crescendo, culminating? This hour is the cross. Jesus asks the Father to glorify his name, to which the Father answers he has glorified it and will glorify it again. See, the place where God most glorifies his name, which, we, which he will not share with another, is on the cross. Now, why is the cross the deepest, broadest, biggest revelation of the other? See, what does the word glory mean? It means the weightiness, the otherness of God. Why does the cross reveal that which makes God completely other? Because if we approach this topic, we have to ask, well, is God going to be a God of justice, but not of love? Or is he going to be a God of love, but not just? But see, only if the cross happened can he be both a God of utterly furious love and at the same time a God of justice. Because here's what the Bible teaches. On the cross, Jesus is the judge because he's the creator who called us in righteousness who himself was judged. So we have the complete revelation of the justice of God expressed upon Jesus, purely out of God's love for us. See, Jesus Christ took all of the justice, all of the punishment, all of the anger, all of the vengeance of God upon himself so that we wouldn't have to receive it. See, let's go back to the promises of verse 3. And why does the servant, how does he ultimately serve us? Verse 3 says, a bruised reed he will not break. Now, we need to understand what that word bruised really means. Because in the Hebrew, it's not like we think of bruised, like Evie and I have this puppy, Gracie. And we'll often compare where she's been playing with us a little too hard. And we'll go, okay, you have a bruise where? I have a bruise here. And, you know, they're sore, they hurt, but we get over them. In Hebrew, the word bruised means crushed. Jesus won't break you because he was crushed for you. A bruised reed he will not break. How many of you are bruised this morning? How many of you are smoldering this morning? How many of you feel a sense of isolation or a sense of loneliness, a sense of helplessness, a sense of pain, a sense of uncertainty? You feel like a bruised reed. Do you know why that can be temporary in your life if you surrender to Jesus? Because he took your ultimate crushing. Because he took your ultimate bruising. You know, this was prophesied way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. After Adam and Eve fell and the curse was being given to them, the serpent was spoken to. And here's what was said to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring was to become Jesus, the servant. He shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise or crush his heel. See, love is always costly, and it costs Jesus his life. Tim Keller gives the following illustration that he says it's a strange illustration. I think it's the best way to illustrate this. He says, picture you're with a group of friends, and you're outside, and maybe you're standing around a campfire, 
So you're out in the woods and you're around this campfire and you're with a group of friends where in slithers this poisonous snake. And so what happens? You're all at risk. One friend steps forward and crushes the head of that venomous, poisonous snake. But of course, what does the venomous, poisonous snake do? It bites him in the heel, killing him. Jesus' heel was bruised on the cross so that you would never be crushed under the justice and judgment of God. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That is the extent and the depth and the width and the breadth of his love for you. Now, how does that impact us and change us if we dare? And it is a dare. You know what? Want to know what kind of what makes sense how to live in this world? Take control of your own life. You want to know what's completely countercultural and counterintuitive? Give up your life for the sake of another, the one who gave his life for you. But what does it look like if you give your life to Jesus, the one who gave his life for you, and actually put yourself and entrust yourself? Like you're falling off a cliff, but you know he's there to catch you. But it feels like you're falling off a cliff. That's a scary thing. But you know he's the bungee cord that has you. What does a life look like that does that, that surrenders to his love and entrusts himself to his care? It looks like a life of love. And see, and what does loving mean? It means following Jesus into his work, into his ministry of bringing shalom into a broken world. And at the very least, I won't even get into See, I could preach probably a half dozen sermons from this text. I'm being sensitive to you. I'm running out of time, and I'm trying to be kind here. I'm not even talking about releasing prisoners from the dungeon or being a light to the nations or opening the eyes of the blinds, but I just want you to think about one application this morning. If we are all bruised reeds, how often do we go around... Rather than being gentle to bruised reeds, we go around breaking bruised reeds. We're bruised reeds that Jesus says, let me take your brokenness on myself. I will be crushed for you. I want you to look around this room at the person sitting next to you and know and have it in the forefront of your mind. They are a bruised reed. Somewhere in their life, they're hurting. They're experiencing pain of some sort. And sometimes the church can be the very worst place for crushing bruised reeds. Rather than the place of hope, humility, and love. Where we know we're on each other's side and we're tender towards bruised reeds. And then we can move out approaching the world, recognizing the world needs the church to step up and live lives of hope humility, and love, because the world is filled with bruised reeds who don't know about Jesus. The world is filled with bruised reeds that need to be released from the dungeon, have their eyes opened. So at the very least, if we recognize we're a bruised reed that God refused to break, we're a smoldering wick, the candle is going out. And Jesus refuses to put us out no matter. You may feel like you're sitting here today and you have absolutely zero to give to God. Let me affirm you. You're right. You have zero to give to God. But here's the promise. He's given everything for you. 
He's giving everything to you and He will not snuff out your smoldering wick. Oh, that we would not snuff out the smoldering wicks of people sitting next to us. Can you picture what a place of grace this place can be? Will you surrender to the hope and the humility and the love that is in unto us, a child is born unto us, a son is given, and he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Father, I do pray that you would work in our hearts to show us Jesus. Father, thank you for sending Jesus into the world. We certainly didn't deserve it. We don't earn it. We don't merit it. We absolutely are not even appreciative of it when we get it. And yet, you're so over the top in your generosity. You don't snuff us out. You don't crush us. Instead, you took the crushing for us. Help us to understand that. Help us to grasp the gospel. May it be good news to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.